What's up? It's Jenny Ellisku. This is a special bonus episode for LSQ listeners of a podcast I had an excellent time collaborating on as a producer with Alt-J. Things Will Get Better delves into the band's early days and the making of their incredible, groundbreaking debut album, An Awesome Wave, to celebrate its 10th anniversary. And among the five episodes, the band revisits the college house where it all started. They dig into previously lost demos, including for the song that gives the series its name. And we also did an LSQ podcast-style interview in one of the episodes, and that's what you'll hear. And if you like it, I hope you'll explore the rest of the series. You can find it at anchor.fm slash wave. It's Gus from Alt-J here again, and we're on episode three of Things Will Get Better. For this episode, I'm going to hand over the mic to journalist Jenny Ellisku, who helped us make this series, and who interviews Joe, Tom, and me about how we first discovered our own musicality and how we came together to start Alt-J. Hey, I'm Jenny Ellisku, and it's my pleasure to be interviewing Gus and Joe and Tom in this episode of Things Will Get Better about Alt-J's early days together, and their even earlier days as kids before they ever met. And we'll get there, but I do want to start with that simple question of, in what order did you guys meet, and, and like, how did that series of events happen? I think we were the first two band members to meet, probably by almost 24 hours or something. So in university, they have Freshers' Week, which is a week of um, Mm. getting used to the city that you're in. And the day that we moved into our halls of residence, which was a Saturday, there was a party in a particular block, in a particular flat. And there was definitely some some serendipity involved there, I think, wasn't there? You know, you were walking past and got invited into the party. And, you know, it was not a party in your block. And we probably would have not met otherwise. It was lucky because I was with a woman who I later found out wasn't in the right halls of residence. She was meant to be in um, Devonshire, and she was very unhappy with the state of her halls. And she wasn't where she needed to be. And uh, we were there on our own. And my father had driven me up from Southampton, which was about a 200-mile trip, which is a huge distance in the UK. And I arrived in the afternoon. I met her and her father, I believe. And then her father left, my father left, and it was just me and this woman. And we just didn't know what to do. Because there wasn't much of a chemistry between us and we neither of us knew the city. So we had a rough idea where the campus was. So we decided to go to the campus to find something to do because it was the week to do things as students <laughs> for the first time, those exciting sort of times. And uh, we weren't having a fun time. So we were like, well, let's find where the fun times are. So we were walking down the road and some guy shouted at us from the top level of the flats mm-hmm. and was just like, he was called Mickey. And he looked like a character from Tekken. Kind of a manga look, yeah, and, blonde uh, hair. Yeah, and he shouted down. He was like, do you want to come to our party? And I looked at her. I was like, should we go up? And she was like, I mean, I think she shrugged her shoulders. <laughs> She'd already left the, She'd left. Yeah. Left the space, I think, in her mind. And we went up and uh, I met you in the kitchen. Yep. Got chatting, found, made each other laugh. Then you met Tom and Gwill on your course yeah. a bit later. So a I week met, later or something? I then? think a week yeah. later, yeah. yeah. I, met, I met Tom. And Gwill and I really hit it off. Tom was coming in and out of Leeds because at the time he was on dialysis for his kidney. It meant that he wasn't in so regularly. So I didn't see much of Tom for the first six months. But 
we had a good friendship and he made me laugh and he was pretty intense with his sort of like artistic practice and his endeavor sort of like reaching this his idea of what perfect painting was and so I sort of like hung out with Gwil quite a lot and that's where the band kind of started us just playing music together I would say yeah and Gwil was living at that house in Leeds at Ashgrove is that correct yes yeah so in, yeah. in English universities you have to pick your house for second year quite early in first year which is kind of weird so you were kind of finding a house in Hyde Park and you actually asked you and Gwil asked me to live in it because I, I was also doing a course with Gwil I think I was doing I did a module in history of art which Gwil, and Gwil was in my class oh, right I may have even been in your class. You weren't in my class. I just didn't turn up. <laughs> you definitely weren't in my class. Oh, okay, sorry. The first year, you were still quite on it. You were still was quite I? serious about your degree in first year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I got to know Gwil a bit and we got on well. But then um, you asked me to be in that house. And I said, no, because I already had plans to live with other people who were people in my halls, who I'm not friends with now at all. And I didn't even end up living in that house because mm. I realized they were not going to oh, be really? my friends for life. Yeah, it's interesting. You kind of uh, you have two roads to go down at university. You either invest time and energy into your housemates or people on your course. Yeah, so that house was then formed and yeah, it was you and Gwil and five other people. But yeah, and Tom at this point did move back to Leeds in second year, didn't he? Yeah. Or move into Leeds, I should say. Yeah. Because um, he had his transplant and all that stuff. Yeah. And that was when the Alt-J, well, that was when the band fully started, was the beginning of second year. Yeah. When Tom and I got involved. Yeah, he had his transplant in 2008 and it kind of uh, completely revolutionised his way of living. So mm. he came back to Leeds and um, that was the that was the moment where we started, well, Gwil and I started going further afield in terms of um, contacting people to write with us. And actually, really, the first two people we, we thought of were Gus and Tom. So there were no interactions of the band. It was just us. Yeah, true. No one's no one until Gwil left the band. I almost said no one's ever left Alt J, but that's yeah. not true. No, it's not true. <laughs> yeah. But you arrived all to study visual arts, or Gus? Were you what? what? I was doing English lit. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you got there with an interest in music already, or an interest in playing music already, independently. Were you? Did did you, or at least the two of you, show up thinking I'm going to study? when I'm going to study, but I'd also like to start a band. You did. Yeah, I did. A good bit of advice for others, those that are listening that are going to university or college and they want to meet you know, musicians, don't do like a course in music, do a course in art. Or, you know, um, you'll find much more malleable and flexible thinking and more creative, I don't know, openness to working on new ideas and actually yeah I, I went to find musicians at a fine art school i was the opposite i was actually coming to university ready to have a big break from music like i'd had such an intense childhood of music like being a chorister going to boarding school singing in the cathedral every day for four years of my life and then even when i was a teenager having to be being a music scholar having to be in all these different choirs and orchestras and stuff at high school yeah i was like okay great Leeds, uni, English. I was interested in journalism. You know, I was kind of like, I'm going to put music, you know, very much to one side for now. I wasn't going up to Leeds with any interest at all in doing any music, really. Ironically, yeah. ended up meeting you. And yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah. I was also on the, yeah, I was on the lookout as well. So I mm. think I, I was investigating potential friends and, and those that play instruments. So I do remember after we met that first night, we were in, um, we would bump into each other quite regularly in the, in the laundry. In the laundry. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was where I started finding out a bit more about your history 
mm. and uh, I was kind of sort of like figuring out whether you played an instrument and mm. very and quickly I discovered you did and you you had a number of skills and I remember thinking not only is he funny and we kind of good looking affable and fairly attractive <laughs> I also saw in Gus someone who was very competent at the instruments that he played and had been playing for years and I was like this is very interesting so you already had this sense, you know, you, that you would like to find people who could, you could play music with. What had been your previous experience with music coming to university? So my father, I grew up watching my dad play guitar with his sister in pubs. And he had a lot of guitars around the house. So I was kind of exposed to the guitar as a way of expressing yourself from an early age. And my dad was really interested in music. So I grew up listening, always listening to music in the house. And my dad was keen for me to learn guitar, but I was almost put off by learning guitar because my dad played it so much. But there came, there was a turning point, I think, when I was like 13 and I was like, I just decided to start playing guitar. And um, I learned on my own. I'd sort of, I was self-taught for the first year or so maybe. And then I started getting lessons from uh, a guy called who was like a uh, technically proficient shredder. <laughs> and uh, he was a real character. And he talked to me at the age of 14 about all of his uh, sexual conquests, I suppose. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say. <laughs> at least you gave his full name. Maybe you should dox him as well. What's his address? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose I learned through him that... Um, it was a way of attracting the sex you were interested in. And I found that quite curious because I was a 14-year-old and sort of becoming more interested in um, women and stuff. And, and then I started playing quite regularly and it was a way of me escaping, I don't know, just sort of like the burden of everyday life. Being in your room on your own, just playing guitar and forgetting about the time that went by. And you, what would you have been listening to or kind of aspiring to sound like at, at that early point? It's funny, I used to listen to a lot of things. I mean, at that age, I was listening to a lot of Jeff Buckley and I was listening to Bob Marley and then Jimi Hendrix, Jethro Tull, Jackson Brown, a lot of Elliot Smith. And yeah, I think for me, it was more about songwriting. It wasn't about a connection with the guitar. It was about finding a higher plane in which you saw yourself writing things that moved people you didn't know and I was desperate to get there and I knew that if I kept working at it I would reach a point where I was writing a song that I would then think I'm so proud that I've written this and I know that no one else has written it but me and it's so unique to all of the time and energy that's that has gone into this point and it's a real representation of my mind and uh, both conscious and unconscious and it was almost like it was like a sculpture, almost. I don't know. And that was what I wanted to get to. But then I was endlessly frustrated, you know, listening to like Elliot Smith or Jeff Buckley because they were writing songs that were mesmerizing and I just didn't know how they got there. I didn't know how they connected the dots. And I think that fascination and equal frustration kept me writing. And even when I went, even when I was at university and I met Gus and I met Quill and Tom, I hadn't reached that point where I was truly satisfied with what I was doing. But I thought that by, you know, essentially having an open invitation to strangers listening to what I was doing, I could reach that with some other people's help. And then I did Mushrooms in 2007 and my mind just changed. 
and I started writing songs that I thought were really, really interesting. And I had a lot of mental health issues at that time as a result. But equal to that, I think I was able to connect things that I couldn't before or I couldn't connect with before. That makes a lot of sense to think about that it wasn't so much something sounding a certain way. It was it hitting a certain way that was, you know, the thing that you were after. And so perhaps had more of an openness and flexibility to what other people's, you know, quote unquote influences were that you might meet because it was you were looking for something larger than, as you've said in some of these conversations, bands where everyone wants to sound the same or likes the same things. It, it comes together differently than when you're coming at it with all of these different influences and you arrive at something you know truly unique that way. So when you're out there kind of putting out your feelers and meeting Gwil and, and meeting Gus, you weren't looking for some magical combination of artists you like to be uttered, to want to have them come over and jam. No, not really. Mm-hmm. No. I think it was at first... I think committing to the idea that you're playing in front of people you don't know with with songs that you've worked on for years that you're not quite satisfied with, but there is something there that you can't put your finger on. I think that takes up all of your, essentially, vision for the next hour when you're working with uh, Gars or Tom. And I'm not sort of putting the brakes on other people's experience of that music by saying, "I I want you to think of X when I play you this. Because, you know, you're shutting down the curiosity that people might feel when they first listen to something for the first time. And I think I was always interested in just how they reacted to it rather than giving them cues of where they should go with it. I think at the time, all I knew about Gus was that he played piano to a grade eight level. He could sing and he was interested in a side of music history that I'd never been exposed to. And I thought that that was interesting enough to leave him alone when I was playing him songs. (laughs) That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, let's go back a little bit more and fill in some of the spaces more of exactly what you began to describe. How did you get involved in music as a kid? And uh... Well, my dad was, for a time, like a professional harpsichordist. So in the 60s, moved to Paris to study with a harpsichordist called Raphael Puyano, who was maybe the best harpsichordist in the world at the time, I suppose. And he kind of became his kind of, I think his one student and, you know, was going through this incredibly intense education with him. And I think ultimately my dad kind of burned out with that. You know, I think he, I've never really talked to him about it. And so that didn't work out for him, but he carried on working in and around music for the rest of his life. He's not dead, by the way, but he is now retired. So he kind of got me going on playing the piano when I was actually probably was playing the harpsichord, to be honest. Um, I think we don't, I think we had a harpsichord in the house um, when we lived in France. I don't really remember a time when I didn't play the piano. And I started as a kid, you know, then when we moved to England from France, where I was born, I started doing like, you know, grades and teachers and lessons and all the rest of it. And then when I was eight, my mum and dad decided I should audition for Ely Cathedral Choir, which is a kind of like traditional English cathedral choral education where you board and you, you know, sing in the cathedral like at services um, several times a week. And so I did that and I got in. And so then it was all kind of a complete sort of four-year immersion in church music and um, ecclesiastical singing, uh, which was amazing. And actually, I think I've in the last few years, kind of really started to appreciate what I had there and, well, not miss it so much because obviously I know I can never go back to that time, but kind of just fantasize about 
that life I had a bit more. And, you know, I've subsequently joined a choir in London. And this is kind of a side note, you know, and, and got more into that kind of thing again. I think I've realized that it was something that I'm really good at and something that I really, really enjoy and that gives me a large amount of pleasure is that kind of singing. So, um, and yeah, that was that was really me. And then also on my mum's side, my mum's family um, are from Sussex and were very into folk music and folk singing. And so I also, whenever I was there, which we'd go and stay there several times a year, we'd do lots of kind of group family singing. So that was another whole thing that I liked as a kid, found embarrassing as a teenager. And now, again, I really appreciate and I, I love singing folk songs as well. And that informed, I know, some of your taste in music, even at that point, like that, like I know you're a fan, for instance, of Nick Drake and some of that similar kind of cool, classic English folk. Absolutely. And yeah, it was when I was at university that I really kind of discovered more of that stuff. And as a side note to all that, I mean, when I was a teenager, you know, it wasn't like I was a complete kind of like classical, you know, music nerd. I was, I had pretty broad taste in kind of indie music at the time. I was very into, you know, the Strokes and Kings of Leon and that kind of thing, which is not really something that is felt that much, I would say, now in my influence. To, I think what I bring to Alt-J is, is much more based on that classical and also that folk side of things, which is great. You know, when I was a teenager, if I imagined myself being in a band, it was probably imagining myself as a guitarist because I was a bad teenage guitarist, you know, writing music that sounded like Kings of Leon, who I do still love, by the way. But it would, it was not, I would not have imagined I'd be drawing on my chorister years or, you know, singing folk songs in my grandparents' house. That would not, you know, would not have crossed my mind as being the important thing to me now. And Tom, what about you? What had been like your childhood experiences with music before you met the other guys? Well, I became interested in drums specifically from about six years old. Like I was aware that drums existed and I just wanted to play on them. I tapped a lot when I was a kid on desks and on myself and in hindsight, I feel like rhythm has always been a part of my chemistry. Like It's in my body and in my mind, and it's comforting to me. And I think when I was a kid, I found rhythm very comforting. Just the physical kind of hold that it has you in and the safety that rhythm has. I sort of kind of noticed that as I was growing up. And I had this instinctual, it felt like a need to play drums. And so when I went to secondary school, it's high school, like, 11 or 12, I had the opportunity to use the drums that they had there, which were a lot better and they had more drums and stuff. They kind of let me use them after school. So the teachers noticed I had rhythm and my dad couldn't afford lessons. So I taught myself after school just by playing and listening to music. And I got really into music at that age, listening to bands like Nirvana and Metallica and uh, Rage Against the Machine and Green Day and a lot of like kind of alternative like metal bands and Deftones was was probably the biggest influence. And I just listened to stuff and, and played along to it, tried to. And then I formed a little band with my friends a couple of years, sort of like 13, 14, I think. And we just played together after school, each other's houses, wherever we could. And we did a lot of covers. And we did that growing up, right up until uh, I went to university which is when I, I went to study fine art. So I did painting. Well, I got into art, making art. I like drawing a lot. I find it very relaxing and helped me focus. And then it, it was always it was a hobby in the background. I was always quite good at it. Like I always liked painting at school. And when I was, I think, I think uh, 18 or 19, I went to live with my mom in Cornwall. I got very ill at the time. And then she knew that I'd like, I liked drawing and was into art and stuff. And she recommended that I went to a college, local um, art college, to do a foundation degree in fine art, which I did. And that completely changed my life. 
I kind of just was opened up to so much. Like I've never since then never been open opened up to so much in such a short space of time. Just learning about art history and and conceptual art and just all of it, and it really really resonated with me because I was mentally very fragile and I was in a very unique place and my physical health was I was keeping a balance of it's hard to talk about it without sounding really quite blunt about it but I was on the edge because I was having treatment every two days which took up a whole day and so I was feeling very very existential and I put that into work and I thought about it a lot and I thought about what is it that I'm trying to communicate what do I want to show in a picture? I wanted to show nothing, really. I wanted to kind of create something that transcended how I felt. And um, that meant that nothing else was good enough. Nothing was good enough as a medium. So I had to create nothing, which was just a void, like a black square. And I just did that over and over again, perfected it and did, tried different paint, tried to get as, um, a matte as texture as possible so it reflected no light back. And uh, I did that. And then that meant that I could go to university then because I didn't have any qualifications before that which were good enough to go to university. So my tutors at college were very, very encouraging. They were like, you can go, go to university if you want to, we'll help you do it. So I built a portfolio and I applied for Leeds University. It was the only place I applied for because that's where I'm from pretty much. And it meant that I could go back and live with my dad. So I did that, I applied and I got in. And I started university in 2007 and then got to university and I met Joe on the very first day of our degree, the very first seminar. It was him and I. We were the first two people in the room uh, and Joe was arranging the chairs, I think into like a circle. And I was just like, oh, well, okay, this is interesting. I don't know who this guy is. And we got on really well immediately. We started talking about an artist that we both like uh, called David Strigley. We became friends, I think, that moment, really. And then over the course of that first year, I was still quite sick. So I was still having treatment every two days. So it meant I spent a lot of time out of university. I didn't get to know people that well. And then the summer of 2008, just before our second year of university, I had a kidney transplant, which meant that I could stop the treatment that I was having in it gave me a, a whole um, new life entirely. I was able to move into student accommodation. I had way more time, way more energy. I had a new new lease on life, you know, and, and so that meant I was with people more. And that's when Joe and Gwell had been making music together a little bit over the course of the first year. And they knew that I'd played drums and they asked if I wanted to go and hang out. So I went along and they played me a couple of tracks which they'd written. And I was really amazed, like really, uh, really taken back just about just how unique it was, how infectious it was. It was a real turning point. I think for me personally, I think for all of us, it's so, so rare that that happens. I mean, for a group of people to get together and have perfect chemistry, really. And I was just flattered to be there as well. Like, I think for a few for a few months, I didn't consider myself to be a part of the band. Like, I, I kind of was very careful about the language that I used because I, I didn't want to assume. And then I think eventually I kind of realized that I was being that way. And they were like, you know, you're in the band. Like We're all in the band together kind of thing. And it was a real special feeling. because I, I mean, I'd been in bands before. We didn't take it that seriously, though. It was, it was 
it was fun and I, I learned a hell of a lot. And those, those people that I grew up with are still my very close friends. But this just was something else. The timing of it all, it's going and studying a, a fine art degree together, first time away from home, really, and then writing music together. And we were accomplished enough, like in our own way. Like we were amateur in a lot of ways, but at the same time, like I'd been playing drums since I was six years old. Like the way that Joe uses the guitar is completely authentic and unique. It feels silly to describe him as a guitarist almost. Like, and the same for the others too. But we, we did it because we loved it and we did it as much as possible. And we knew that it was going well. And I think the main thing was is that it felt very good and that we enjoyed each other's company. And, and that, again, like you couldn't put four people together and make that happen in a million years if you tried. It was just a combination of so many different factors that all worked perfectly. And during those early occasions, and whether it might have been Joe with you and Gwil initially before kind of guests started to come over, what were the things that felt good about it early on enough to keep going? What do you remember kind of sparkling at those early get-togethers? I think one of the core factors that kept it going was that people were, I think, they were willing to listen. And also, they were equally proficient. You know, when we were recording the early stuff, which was Gwil and I, Will had garage band and he had a microphone and he could plug in instruments into garage band and already I was relying on his ability to sort of take the songs that I was writing and he was sort of collaborating with me on and putting them into the computer. I found that like that was a huge leap into the unknown because at that point before then I was just writing or attempting to write songs in, just in my room and remembering them and actually this time I was kind of recording them and making a record of ideas. And I felt like that was a huge... It's true. It's, it's worth mentioning, I think, at that, at that, at that, that at that point, for any younger listeners, that, you know, in 2000, in the mid-noughties, it was not a given that you had access to even a dictaphone. Not that they were expensive, exactly, but that it was definitely a thing you either had or you didn't have. Yeah. You did not have a phone which ought to had, an, had an inbuilt, native, pretty good kind of dictaphone built yeah. in, you know. And so actually even, it's kind of, I've never thought about that before. Like you said, you were just writing songs and just remembering yeah. them, <laughs> yeah. hoping to remember them. Yeah. yeah. I was like, if I'm lucky, I'll pass these songs down to my children. <laughs> the oral tradition. The oral tradition, yeah. <laughs> I knew my dad gave me an eight track once and it's all analog, so it's pretty straightforward. And I think I wrote something once that had sort of four different channels. There was a harmony on one, mm. uh, a, a, a second guitar part. But I did that once. Yeah. And back to remembering. <laughs> back to remembering. The old eight track up here, yeah. 16 track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 16 track. Come on, man. And so once you could hear a recording of your songs played back to you, I mean, because that's significant as well, you know, and I'm sure it was instructive. Did you start to refine your idea of what this band was? You know, did you ever kind of converse about? where you wanted to take it or did you just sort of leave it open to you know one day to the next how it evolved I mean I never thought we were finished I think that the refining of ideas came through writing new ideas and it had quite an organic process we didn't have any agenda mm. other than meeting up every week and in that time before meeting there was maybe an expectation that a new idea was going to be worked on. I think we started there. And then I think we realized that, you know, there were three of us were fine artists. Gus had the mind of a, 
you know, a writer. You, you, I, I've always thought, Gus, you probably have the mind of a, a, a writer and a designer of spaces. Hmm. I think that we all had very interesting outlook on new ideas. And so we just let it grow in that way. And yeah. I think that we, it was good that we all had quite different tastes in music. And I think, and I think our taste was also evolving as we were starting the band. Mm. You know, I think when Tom first joined the band, he really was just like a strictly heavy metal guy, right? Or metal. You know, around that time was when In Rainbows came out and we all kind of loved that album. And Tom basically, I think, has said before that, you know, maybe I don't want to speak for him, but that finding that album made him, made him realize that there was music outside metal that was worthy of his consideration, essentially. Cut to Tom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Radiohead were a big influence for me at the time. They have been since then, really. The album In Rainbows. There's a handful of albums that I've listened to in my life which have changed the way that I think about music. And that was one of them. In particular, a track, Reckoner. The drums on that, the percussion, the way that it all kind of comes together so perfectly. I tried to kind of apply that. I think that was a bit further down the line now. I think maybe with recording and things, I, try, I tried to think about things more. But at the beginning, it, was, it felt very instinctual. And, and I wanted to impress them a bit too. And, and because we were quite limited to equipment, that added a whole discipline, which... I think at the time, we might have been a bit frustrated with or we thought one day we'll get everything we want and it'll be better. But in hindsight, again, it was one of those ingredients that just added to how perfect everything was, was not having everything that we wanted meant that we had to... I, I felt like I had to work a little bit harder with what I had. Uh, originally, I just started with a snare drum and a kick drum and then I added like a little percussive like shaker and a saucepan, which I tied to my leg. That was it. But it cut through everything. You could just you could hear it all. Like when we played together, it was just like there was barely anything there. And so when the band first started, I thought that we, I kind of thought we sounded a kind of like trip hop, you know. And yeah, there we was an called, element of that. I mean, our email um, address was Jump Folk. It was very folky because mm. of uh, your background and mine and yours. And yeah. mine. But it was the way Tom played drums, or the limitations that were thrust upon him mm. due to the way we were living. Um, i.e. he couldn't make too much noise so and he could only carry a certain amount of kit with him so he didn't have any sort of like symbols so it meant that he had quite a um, with his heavy metal background he had quite a um, hip-hoppy beat vibe to him so we had folk music and hip-hop beats and so we, we kind of joked that it was kind of jump folk yeah yeah exactly I think we had a few of those didn't we trip folk maybe trip with folk. another one the ver various ones that we sort of yeah. thought up yeah and then yeah. somebody later we heard that there was something called folktronica and we were like oh that's us we're folktronica yeah. you know yeah. so you were aware at the time that like fuck this is going really well oh yeah yes I mean straight away really at that point like in my life or whatever, I wasn't committing to anything like that seriously in terms of like the rest of my life. I was living by the day a lot of the time and, and, and you know, I think struggling with, with health for the majority of my life, that, that's the way that I kind of looked at things was I just did not think about my future. Like I, I didn't plan a career. I went to university because I was encouraged to and it was only until I got there when I realized that this is a part of a plan for a lot of people. Like, this is the beginning of the rest of their lives. Like, I didn't think like that. And it's just, I still don't, really. I, I don't look too far ahead, but I knew that I wanted to come back again after we played together. I wanted to go back again and do it again and get better and show people as well. I was really keen to show people. The feeling I got from playing, I was just so proud of myself, of Buzz. Like, I just, I knew, I, knew, I still know that it's 
unique completely. So what were the first songs from that either did make it onto the album or from this group of demos that you remember felt like truly the beginning of Alt-J? Towards the end of first year, you gave me, I think you gave me a CD, which I think had I don't remember some songs that you and Gwilla done on, right. which I think was Hiroshima, Casio, maybe Bigger Man, and maybe one more. I can't remember. Or maybe it was just on MySpace. Anyway, I don't know. But yeah. you did some stuff. And then Portrait was the first song that we all did together at the beginning of second yeah. year. I so remember. you must have started writing that over the summer or something. Yeah, I probably would have written that over mm. summer. Which was definitely the first song that was a lot more upbeat. And I think all of the kind of songwriters that I was glued to as a, as a late teenager were very, you know, it's almost like it was like one man and his guitar kind of thing. And it was, it was quite somber and it was drawing from more of the darker side of human nature. They were like long ballads. And that's what I wanted to recreate. I wanted to have that connection with potential listeners where I could actually talk them through the life of a character and bring them to their knees. <laughs> but over time, I think the music became, surprisingly for me, much more upbeat in some cases. And yeah, so Portrait was a, as a departure from maybe the songs I was writing. But it's classic. It's a classical J song in that there's a lot of dark content in that song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's always dark content yeah, in there. It's yeah, just, it's yeah. kind of like played at a, a high tempo. And yeah, exactly. You wouldn't think that to... What's it? So I think I think because if, if memory serves, I think that I contributed an idea to it lyrically about the uh, that, there's that story about Saint ba is it Saint Basil's Cathedral in Moscow where supposedly the Tsar or whatever had the architect who made it blinded so he could never make anything as beautiful again. Oh wow! And I think that you yeah. put in a line about that into the song, but there's some it's basically an idea about a, some kind of king or somebody having his portrait painted, right? I thought it was always fascinating that before photography in the modern age, the memory of someone was based on one point in time of a painting that was taken of them. And so you obviously needed to find a good painter to dispel your likeness onto canvas and also be, you know, complementary at the same time. And then you told me that maybe and it mm. kind of created this, this conversation between a king and his painter. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. There's kind of, there's violence in there and there's yeah. beauty yeah. and madness. And that's all, Jay. <laughs> yeah, I was writing that song. It must have been in the summer. I, I remember the room in my parents' house that I was in when I was writing it. And it was very like up, down, up, down, up, down on the uh, bass string of guitar. But I was like, this is fucking catchy. Mm. And I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd sort of like had that moment with writing where I'd, I was writing something upbeat and catchy. Was it the first song we worked on? That's my memory of it. And I remember playing it, <laughs> yeah. and, and Tom just had his little, was it? Like six, a 10-inch snare. Ten inch snare. Yeah, like a mini snare. And he just started... Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it happened really quickly. Almost like a fight. It just was over before you realised what's going on. I think we all quickly wrote parts of that song that were good. And I think that was yeah. so lucky, because I think that really probably that initial energy and that initial good vibe kind of yeah. just like kept us going for yeah. that whole first year probably you know yeah. if it had been harder because you know so it's you know university or I mean certainly in my case you know you're trying out so much stuff like you know I was there because I was excited to be asked to do it but you know I was probably going along thinking mm, there's probably a 70% chance this is going to yeah. fizzle out yeah. you know like we might try it for a bit like I'd, I'd been in like 
kind of a band when I was in the last year of school and, you know, it never really went anywhere and we had a bit of fun doing it, but ultimately we all kind of just moved on and didn't take it that seriously. And I sort of thought, oh, well, this will just be another thing I try. We attained the thing we dreamed of Mm. in the first encounter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I think whether we knew it then or not, I think it may have had an unconscious effect on the rest of the year for sure. Yeah. And that song was our kind of our calling card for so long, yeah. wasn't it? You know, it was yeah. almost like we wore it out by... Because for, for so many years, that was our big song. That was our breeze blocks, really, yeah. until the first album came out. It was, we'd yeah. play it last in our sets. We, you know, it was all of our friends' favourite songs of ours. And, you know, it was like... In a way, it was it was like a kind of kill your darlings kind of thing. Yeah. You know, or perhaps it was almost a kind of symbolic sacrifice that we didn't put Portrait on the album because it had been yeah. our big song. And I think it was a, a kind of saying, no, we're we're be- we're even better than that. And I think we were motivated by the fact that we keep writing songs that we were excited by. And I think that was one of the huge catalysts in sort of like prolonging our focus and um, our attention span over the years that we mm. had before we released the first album. And it still exists now because I've always thought that if the day comes where I'm not writing a song I'm excited by, I will probably spiral into a deep soul-like panic because I'll just be lying to myself and, you know, selling our stock. And let's talk a bit about Hiroshima, which is, you know, another like, you know, I hadn't heard these ever before. And like, to me, I'm just like, objectively, these are fucking great. But as you listen back and zoom out, even on your recent playback of these tunes, listening to them now, can you appreciate how good they were then in a new way? I think so, yeah. I think in a way, you know, I think we were so lucky with An Awesome Wave that it was this big hit kind of, which nobody expected that perhaps there's an argument to say it's perfect the way it is. And, you know, if we had put those songs on, maybe things would have turned out differently. I think in some kind of butterfly effect way, they certainly would have turned out differently, mm. slightly differently. And yeah, Hiroshima was Hiroshima was one you played me in first year, definitely, because yeah. it was one you then did with Gwil. And I remember hearing it for the first time and like, I'd never been in a room with somebody who'd written a song as good as that. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that was definitely what I thought. You know, I was kind of like, okay, by this point, by the age of 18, you know, I'd heard a few songs that friends had written and people at school had written and stuff. And, you know, you were always kind of aware that you were listening to somebody who was, you know, not brilliant at songwriting, I suppose. And it was definitely like, holy shit, this is a cool moment, you know. And that was another song that, yeah, was, was in our set for years. Kind of rewinding a little before that, how long had you been working together before you started playing shows? So when we started the band, we basically, I think we were kind of anti-gig. You know, we kind of thought like, we're not going to be a gigs band. And I think partly it was a reaction to the kind of like the student band scene in Leeds was a bit like for us, it wasn't really for us. And we didn't really want to be part of that scene. So we were like, no, we, we were so focused on making good recordings and with the ultimate aim of making an album that I think we were like, we're not going to do gigs. And then after three months, so like September, October, November or something of working in Gwil's bedroom and writing songs, we basically were like, you know, it would be kind of cool to do a gig, actually. It's funny how that just kind of crept up on us. And so we organized um, a Christmas party in the house in Ash Grove and invited friends down to watch that. And, and after that, it was kind of like, well, we've done a gig now, so we might as well do more gigs. And I think we also realized how valuable it was to, you know, to get good at playing yeah. live and to also just... Let the songs breathe in a more yeah. sort of uh, public space. Exactly, see which songs worked, which songs didn't, or which parts of songs worked and which parts didn't. And just to get kind of... And also just, I think it's just a good way to let people hear your music, basically, you know. And also get better as musicians. Get better as musicians. It's fun. It's It's really fun. It's terrifying. 
but after playing, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Can relive it. A complete like, a um, rush, a new rush. Blade, and it's a rush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. So then we, we did our first kind of like proper outside gig at a place called TJ's in Leeds, which was a sort of like working men's club kind of place, I think. Yeah. Bit of a rough venue. And we so then we did like quite a few gigs. You know, we'd, we'd play in Leeds, we'd play in Manchester sometimes as, as time went on. Yeah, there was that gig we did in, um, I think it was in Stockton on Tees. Do you remember this one? Oh, yeah. And um, we got we got to this, which is a sort of city in the north of England. And anyway, the promoter was like, do you lads want to get yourselves some dinner? And we were like, yeah, great. You know, we didn't have any money. So he, he gave us, he, he gave us, here you go, here, get yourself some dinner. He gave us 20 quid. And so we went to a fish and chip shop where it was like, I think it was like £2.50 for sausage and chips. So we spent... £10 on four sausage and chips and we bought some backy. so we spent like £3 on a pack of backy. Tobacco. Yeah. And, Pouches uh, of tobacco for, for those American <laughs> listeners. Yeah. And then we came back and, and while we were out um, we got called the in-betweeners which was funny. We were yeah. walking down along the beach, the shoreline eating our chips and these two yeah. girls were like oh it's the in-betweeners which yeah. was very funny. Sort of a British sitcom about some young yeah. awkward teenage We lads. all got quite defensive because like <laughs> Not all of us look like the in-betweeners. But... True, but you could kind of see which yeah, one was yeah, which yeah. one, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah. And then we got back to the venue, we gave the promoter £7 back. We were like, thanks so much for dinner. And we actually felt a bit naughty because we bought tobacco as well as food. Yeah. But we were like, shit, we'll just pretend that the dinner was like, you know, 13 quid. Gave him the £7 back. And then he like emailed our agent the next day. We had a booking agent by this point we'd just started working with. And he was like, First band in all my years promoting, never had change from a buyout before. Yeah. Lovely guys. And, we, and I've always like hung on to that as like yeah. something, it sort of said yeah. something about us at that time. We gave this guy change. Change from a buyout. Yeah, yeah. When did the live show start to feel good and confident and like, oh, okay, we're we're good at this? I think all... Well, I... <laughs> about, about 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, like, you, you says, but <laughs> well, I mean, really, like, not really. Probably, it's not really a joke. I, no, I'd <laughs> yeah. say, I'd say, two thousand and thirteen. Thirteen, like everything. I think, so. I think know, before before that. Well, I think twenty thirteen, but okay. before then, it was all a bit unpredictable. And at first, it was about playing in front of a crowd, and so that was actually a skill you really have to learn by playing in front of a crowd. You know, you go through these horrible moments where you know you've you've only got one guitar and you're. Your manager's tuning the guitar and she's tuning it to a really high note on the keyboard and then snaps the string and then looks at you like, uh, what, 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 what do we what, do now? What, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you going to do about this? Oh, that was our friend Eliza. Big, and, big uh, love to Eliza. And then you just get through it and I think that there comes a point where you find yourself just repeating good quality shows and then a bad one becomes an unusual event. Whereas before there's like 10 shows and they all don't go the way you want it to go but you've played them so that's good and then you play bad shows less less and less and mm. you reach a point maybe 2014 where you're like you're a business and you're just putting on shows and then you have a crew of people that are working their hardest to make sure that everything but playing is going smoothly and it takes time and yeah. then still you have shockers now and again. And also I think it, there's a kind of bell curve where when you play your very first shows, people are surprised by hearing your music and how good your music is. So they compliment you. And then the bell, it's a kind of reverse bell curve where it goes down to people start going, well, yeah. you're going to have to start playing a bit better than this boy. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> like, yeah, yeah. we know you're good at writing songs, yeah. but you're not very good at playing them live. Yeah. And then you kind of come back, the kind of, it kind of curves yeah. back up and you're like, and now you've got good songs and you're playing them yeah. well. But then there's another curve, which is a lot of people don't like your music. <laughs> yeah, that's a separate curve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Also, another thing that you mentioned is, Joe, just kind of finding your voice and the sort of evolution of developing confidence in what it would sound like when you were singing and in this project in particular. I'd love to hear a little more just about kind of that early evolution of of your own attitude about your singing voice and how it developed. Yeah, I mean, I found it quite a release to sing, but I never, ever sung in front of anyone because... um, as an instrument, it's almost like the most unreliable, the voice. And there are ways you can train it so that you can, the sort of like the mean experience is all almost you have control. But at the same time, it's so organic, you don't have control of your voice. So I was always terrified about singing in front of other people. If I wanted to write songs as like a 16-year-old, I would literally count the amount of times the door shut in the house to know whether all of my family had left the house. Because I'd be upstairs playing, but I wouldn't be singing. And I would count the how many times the door shut, and then I'd start singing. And a few few times I'd get it wrong, and I'd hear my sister be like, are you singing? I'd be like, no! <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so I'd sing, like, I'd sing on my own in private. And then when I went to university, and I already knew I wanted to be writing songs with other people. I didn't have that option anymore, so I just had to commit to taking that leap of faith and and, and and singing in front of someone that I trusted. And very quickly, I trusted Gwil. And so the early, early recordings, I'm, my, my voice is very, very different to how um, you hear it now on record. I used to sing. It was very much part of the kind of like 2000, the, the, the mid to late noughties Mockney accent, you know, um, examples being Kate Nash, Kate Nash, Jack Pinata. Jack Pinata. So it'd be very like uh, affected, and Mockney being like someone that isn't a Cockney singing like a Cockney, but Mockney, kind of affected urban London accent yeah. or something. And so I started singing, and I knew that I just had to do it because if I didn't, if I didn't do it, then I probably wouldn't ever do it. And I think university was a really wonderful breeding ground for just making decisions where you expose yourself. And so I did it and I started playing to Quill. And he was very gracious with how maybe vulnerable I, I was. I don't know if he, he realized it at the time, but it was a huge thing for me to do. And I started singing in front of him and that just gave me confidence to just keep singing. If only him, my voice could get better over time because I was exposing it to someone outside of like me, my guitar in an empty room. And then the songs got to a point where we were interested in getting, reaching like Gus and Tom. And it wasn't a huge leap for me to sing in front of Gus and Tom. And just over time, the more I sang in front of other people, the more my voice slowly changed. And the more positivity I felt from the people I trusted most, the greater confidence I gained through singing. And and that isn't something that just stops. It's something that keeps growing. You're never not vulnerable. And it's a fluctuating space that we're all in, where you're always unsure. And actually, that's what good friends are there for. You know, they're to remind you of your talents and who you represent to them. And I think singing has always been something that's been part of that for me with Gus, Tom, and Quill. You know, zooming out a bit, thinking about just like what it's felt like to revisit that time and listen to the demos and go back to Ash Grove and talk to Charlie about making an awesome wave and and all of that. I'm curious, 
what are your main takeaways from, you know, from making this podcast? I feel very lucky that we're still here. You know, I think you looking back to 10 years ago when An Awesome Wave came out, you know, there was a whole scene of bands who we were playing with and rubbing shoulders with and not all that many of them are still are still on the scene, are still, are still making music basically or still going. And so that, that's really, it makes you realize what a privilege it is, I suppose, to, to still be, you know, have, have fans, to still have labels who want to release our music and that kind of thing is massive. And I think also like, Hopefully, it kind of comes across that we had a very good time doing it. You know, I mean, I, and I do really feel that. You know, I mean, I love reminiscing about those early days in Leeds and London and stuff because it was also they're stories that all bands have, and and they are fun. And we did enjoy it, and we did have a good laugh doing it. And that that's a really nice thing. And it's not just about the music we made; it's about the, I suppose, it's about the memories we made at the same time. Going into all of this, I was a little bit skeptical. I was a little bit worried, to be honest, because I, 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 it's a long time ago, and like, but I think back and I. I'm very grateful for my experiences and I'm for the opportunity for me to wake up 10 years later and here I am. I have everything that, uh, sorry. Uh, I have everything that I need. Yeah. It's good to do this. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. I feel like we're like a, a band of brothers. And I think I always feel like if we do live in a multiverse, this is the world that I would choose to be in where I'm a musician. And I still feel like it's something almost isn't true because I mean I could just as easily have been a teacher or you know a zookeeper <laughs> you always come back to that zookeeper I did <laughs> well I love animals um, but I also I don't believe in zoos so uh, maybe I'd be a conservationist you'd be a bad zookeeper I'd be a bad keep, zookeeper keep leaving the gates go. open <laughs> yeah I just feel so lucky that we are where we are and what we're doing. And, you know, so many people hold jobs that they don't like. I feel like even though there are infinite worlds, so there's infinite other worlds where I am a musician and happy, I feel like even though we exclude the infinity of that uh, equation, I still feel like there are more worlds where I'm not happy. And I'm just, I feel so lucky that I'm doing what we're doing, what mm. I'm doing. And I, and I have friends that can amplify my voice in ways that I can't do on my own. I feel very privileged that that's where we are 10 years on. Ahead in episode four of Things Will Get Better, an interview with Gwil Sainsbury, who was one of our founding members and who left the band in 2014. We hear his recollections from our early days. And then in episode five, an interview with our longtime producer, Charlie Andrew. 